Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, February the 18th, 2022. I almost forgot the date there. Welcome, everyone. It is Friday, February the 18th, 2022. It is currently 3.02 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And today... We're doing something a little different. We are currently live on two completely different platforms. We are live for the Church One app. We are live for the Spreaker app. And and there are some other places where people can listen to us live as well. So however you may be listening to us today, welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, This is the Theology Central podcast where we try to make theology central to every aspect of life. We do this with news commentaries. We do this with Bible study exercises. We talk about theology. I mean, there's so many different things we try to do. You never know what you're going to hear when you tune in to another episode of this podcast and this podcast. If If you check us out on most podcast apps, somewhat a humorous thing But this podcast is classified on most podcast apps as an hourly podcast. That means we do a lot of broadcasting. And when I say we, I mean me, because I'm it. I'm it. So so that means you can, you know, if you subscribe to the podcast, just keep your notifications on because there's always new content coming at you on a pretty regular and consistent basis. And one of the things I try to do here is I really try to get people to think. I really try to challenge sometimes the the normal understanding, and sometimes that makes people uncomfortable, but uh, if you like to be challenged to think, if you like maybe to hear a different perspective, if you like to be challenged, then hopefully you'll find uh, this podcast to be perfect for you. If you don't like those things, well, there are about a million other podcasts to choose from. So hopefully you'll find the one that meets your needs. But are you ready? We have a lot to do today. We have a lot to do. Let's begin with three passages of Scripture. Three key passages of Scripture that has everything to do with what we're going to be talking about today. Because today we need to try to provide some clarification. And we'll get to what we're going to clarify, but let's start with the foundation. And the foundation is we've got three passages of Scripture. And before I read these passages of Scripture, I want you to understand a very important, it's kind of a very important hermeneutical principle. It's just a good principle for anyone who is a good Bible student. Over and over and over, when you read the Bible, you are going to find yourself constantly struggling to try to reconcile ideas and verses that may seem to be saying what appears to be the uh, the absolute opposite thing. Like this one says this, this one says that. Wait a minute, how do I reconcile this? In fact, I think in many ways, Bible study is the never-ending process of trying to reconcile what appears to be irreconcilable. In many cases, that's what Bible study is. You're like, wait a minute. Okay, so so the Bible says this, but wait a minute. It also says this. Wait, wait. the Bible seems to indicate that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. At the same time, though, the Bible says we're going to be judged according to our works. Wait a minute. The Bible says we're justified by faith alone. However, James seems to indicate that we're not justified by faith alone. Wait a minute. So how, how do we reconcile this? And And if you think about it, 
what theology attempts to do is to try to reconcile these irreconcilable ideas by saying, no, here, here's how you understand it. Here's the system. Go with our understanding. And everyone has their way of trying to reconcile sometimes these things that appear to be irreconcilable. And it can't, and now some people, are, they're, they're, they just give them a simple answer. They're like, I'm good to go. I, I don't need anything else. And they don't want to hear anything else. If you, if you try to challenge their way of thinking, they're like, they, they plug their ears. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't hear you. I don't hear you. But look, these, these, sometimes these things are very difficult to really try to put together and sometimes very difficult and trying to understand. And we shouldn't, we should not hide from that difficulty. So many times pastors love to stand behind pulpit saying, well, people think this is complicated, but it's really quite easy. And then in 15 minutes, they give you what you think is supposedly a biblical answer. And what they're really doing is giving you the answer from their favorite commentary. Okay. They're giving, they're giving you the answer they got in seminary. And it may be a good answer, but in many cases, they're not actually working through the difficulty with you. And I like to, on this podcast, to work through the difficulties with you. That's what we do with the Bible study exercises, right? An entire week dedicated to one passage of scripture. And we deal with every difficulty that we face in dealing with that passage of scripture. We're not afraid of those hard questions. So I just want you to understand that in many cases, there are things in the Bible that may appear to be irreconcilable. And your job is sometimes trying to figure out how they fit together, how to reconcile them. And we've got three verses here. Well, three passages of scripture, I should say. Two of them are single verses. One of them is, is two verses. So three passages of scripture, if we want to be as correct as we can be, which we do. Um, and well, I'm just going to read them to you. I'm not going to say anything about them as I read them. Now, I know if you know me, you know that that's probably not true because as soon as I start reading them, I'm going to want to start <laughs> taking them apart, but I'm going to do my very best. Okay. All right. So here we go. If you have a Bible, open it up. First Corinthians chapter 10, first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And this is the verse that started, what, two, started a, a, link, a kind of a lengthy series, um, and we worked on this verse and worked on this verse and worked on this verse, and it, it's because of my teaching on this verse, well, that led me now to being right here this afternoon, trying to now bring some clarification. Here we go. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, very famous verse. There hath no temptation, temptation, right? That's, that's what we're going to have to clarify something in regards to the subject of temptation, all right? There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Now, I'm not going to say anything else right now, right? I'm not... We, we, we spent hours working on this. You can go back in the podcast archives and listen to all the hours of, of study on that verse, right? Now, that's the first one. Second, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Here, we are taught to pray this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, that's how Jesus teaches us to pray. 
Then we have James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Verse 14 of James chapter 1. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and is enticed or and enticed, as the King James puts it. Three verses, all three deal with temptation. All three deal with temptation. And some, I think, in fact, not just some, I think any good Bible student could take these three passages of scripture, write them down and start looking at them going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute here. How do I reconcile this? Because I think there's some possible problems, right? That's what we're going to try to work on. We're going to try to do a, at least a, a brief look at these three verses and try to offer at least some thoughts and how to reconcile what may appear to be irreconcilable. Now, some people say, oh, it's no problem. A lot of people love to play down difficulties, but I like to just embrace them. So let me explain how this all started. We were doing a Bible study exercise on the subject of temptation. We were utilizing the story of Joseph in that study. We spent a week on it. And as we got closer to the end of that week, obviously, whenever you deal with the subject of temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is going to get mentioned. So we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and we looked at uh, commentaries and books, and we looked at so many different sources, and they all seem to approach 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and they seem to be almost dogmatic until you kind of listen for the, for the small print, right? When, when, when you really listen for the small print, it called into question everything they said. But at the very beginning of what is said about these verses seems to be very dogmatic. It seems to be very strong language where they say something like this. Let me read the verse to you again. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. All right, nobody has a problem with that. Whatever temptation you face, don't think you're the only one. Other people have faced similar temptations. All right, you're not the only one to experience it, all right? But God is faithful. So you're going to be tempted, and you're going to experience the same kind of temptations people have been experiencing since the history of, of the entire world. As long as human beings have been around, they've been experiencing the same temptations. But God is faithful. Now, that, that, that sounds like good news. But then this is how it's typically preached. God is faithful who will not suffer you to be attempted above that ye are able. The way this is typically preached. Now, there's always exceptions, but typically it's preached like something like, something like this. Whatever temptation you get, God allowed you to get that temptation because he knows you are able to resist it. You're never going to get a temptation that you are not able to resist. Now, if you take that to its logical conclusion, that would seem to imply that therefore, as believers, we can be without sin. We can be sinless. We can stop sinning because any temptation I encounter, I'm able to simply not do it. That's how it's typically preached. Now, typically what some of the books would do in some of the commentaries that would really emphasize, see, you're able, you don't have to sin. And then somewhere at the bottom, like the last sentence of the last paragraph, they would say, however, no one's going to do it perfectly. Wait, 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 wait. You just said that we're able. You're able, but you can't do it perfectly. All right. So there's already that big issue. Now, just I don't have time to review it all. 
I think the only way to understand 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is you have to go back to the four examples that Paul provides from, from the history of Israel. And then you see how though, and then you basically, the answer is going to be ultimately found in the work of Jesus Christ. But I don't have time to go back through all of that. You can, you can go back and listen. But immediately you start realizing, well, wait a minute, this seems to be saying that, that I'm not going to get a temptation unless I'm able, that, I, that unless I'm able to handle it. And not only am I able to ham- handle it, he's also going to make, with that temptation, he's going to make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So not only is he going to, not only is God going to control the temptations I encounter, he's going to make sure he weeds out any that I'm not able to resist. He's only going to give me the ones that I can resist. This is typically how it's preached. And with, not only do I have the ability to resist it, he's going to provide a way to escape it. And this is typically how it is preached. Now, we offered a a, a kind of, I think, a very important alternative. But in the preaching of that, I made some statements. And I received an email in regards to to how the language I used during that, that message. Let me read from the email. I thought I would ask this question right? I don't want it to look like I was trying to correct your sermon. Um, uh, I'm sure you know that's not the case. The sermon itself it, the sermon itself was very helpful. So here's someone who's been listening to a, for a very long time, and no way do I think that they were trying to correct. And even if they were trying to correct, that's perfectly okay. And uh, a sense of, hey, I'm confused about this. Are you sure that you said that correctly? That, that's, uh, pastors have to be willing to, to hear that. So, so that's great. That's wonderful. Thank you know I, so I don't have any problem with the email wonderful great I heard you say this phrase several times in quotations God gave me this temptation or quote God gave me this temptation I could not handle And I realized that was not the main point of your sermon, but I just wanted to make sure I understood this verse from James correctly after hearing you say that a few times. James chapter one, verses 13 through 14. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt any one. Now here becomes the difficulty in trying to reconcile this. I think you can probably already see it, right? All right, so in 1 Corinthians 10, we are told that God is, in a sense, in con- sovereignly, in a so- using his sovereignty. I mean, well, not using it. He is sovereign. But through his sovereignty, he controls whatever temptation I encounter. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 seems to imply that there's God. Here's temptation. And God's like, okay, that temptation he can't handle. I'm going to take that one out. This one he can handle. I'll give that one to him. Now, that seems to and seem to imply that God is giving the temptation. Now I understand James says no, 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 he doesn't tempt anyone. So, what? How do we understand First Corinthians ten? Is it him simply looking at all the temptations coming and going, oh no, no, that one comes through. So it's not God giving the temptation; it's just the ones He allow. Why? You could you could try to say that, but it's still God controlling which temptations you receive. He's still controlling it. He's still sovereign over it. So even if you say, well, it's not God directly. I guess, I guess what we could say, it's not God directly tempting us, but in a sense, he's still giving the temptation because he allowed it in. But it's not God doing the tempta- tempting, 
but he, he, he's bringing the temptation to you. Because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 seems to imply that if you can't handle it, he's not going to let it, he's not going to bring it to you. So how do we, how do we reconcile James with that? And then we have the Matthew 6 passage, which teaches me to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. So how do we understand all of these different concepts? Well, let's just do, I'm going to bring out a couple of things here. I'm going to try to offer my own clarifications, but let's just read from a couple of different sources dealing with at least the Matthew passage, which I think will then ultimately bring in many of these other issues, right? According to one article, we know from James 1, verse 13, that God does not tempt us to sin. If God did tempt us to sin, he would be acting contrary to his holy nature against his desire for us to be holy as he is holy, 1 Peter 1.16, and against all other commandments in scripture that tell us to avoid sin and flee temptation. Now, stop right here. Now, let's just make sure. Let's try to establish this basic concept. The basic concept is that God himself does not tempt us. Now, What does that mean? That seems to imply in my mind that God directly, he himself becomes the, he he in a sense says, here's the temptation that he himself is giving. It's not that, you see, you see, trying to reconcile this is going to be very difficult, but it's that God directly isn't doing the tempting. However, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says he's in charge of all the temptation. So it's almost like this. God is not the one doing the tempting. But God takes temptations that arise from other sources, not him. And then he controls which ones that, which ones of those that we encounter. So it's not like he's giving us the temptation in the sense that he's allowed it to us, but he's not the one doing the temptation. Now in my sermon, I didn't try to clarify that. I was just trying to emphasize the sovereignty of God is like, he's the one controlling the temptations I get. He's giving me the temptation, but it, the temptation is not coming from him. He's just controlling and bringing it to me. But it's a temptation's coming from another source. It's coming from the world. It's coming from whatever. And then God's like, okay, that temptation, I'm going to allow it in. Now, so you can say, well, he's not directly giving it to you, but he... In a sense, he is because he's kind of the gatekeeper, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I guess the only way to draw the, the only way to try to reconcile what may appear to be irreconcilable is that the temptation is not directly coming from God. It's coming from another source. God is, in a sense, the one controlling, though, that it, it, it reaches you, right? Let's see where they go. I think I think that's going to be the, the best answer I can come up with, but let's see what they do with this, all right? So we know from James 1.13 that God does not tempt us to sin. If God did tempt us to sin, he would be acting contrary to his holy nature against his desire for us to be holy as he is holy and against all other commandments in scripture that tell us to avoid sin and flee temptation. And the Lord's model prayer, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The inclusion of a request for God to not lead us into temptation teaches us that avoiding temptation should be one of the primary concerns of the Christian life. Now, let's just stop right here. If my primary concern in the Christian life should be to, as they put it, avoid temptation. Well, wait a minute. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13 seems to imply I can't avoid what God determines I'm going to encounter. Now, it doesn't mean I should run around looking for temptation. I do understand that, but I'm saying we still have to reconcile this concept. The temptations I encounter, God's the one who's sovereignly controlling it, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So now we kind of come up with another thing. How do, we, how do we reconcile this? God controls the temptations I encounter. However, I need to avoid temptation. Well, I agree I need to avoid it, but how does that play in with God controlling the ones I encounter? Again, we, we have kind of this thing, this irreconcilable problem that we have to try to reconcile. Let, let's see where they go with this. The idea of God leading his people is a main theme of scripture. The book of, of Psalms especially is filled with pleas for God to lead us in his ways. Psalm 5, 8, Psalm 27, 11. By his truth and righteousness and in the way everlasting. Um, so he lead us in his ways by his truth and righteousness and in the way of ever, everlasting, Psalm 139, 24. Along with leading us towards good, we understand that we are asking God to lead us away from evil. The petition in the Lord's prayer, not to lead us into temptation, reflects the believer's desire to avoid the dangers of sin altogether. The phrase then must be understood in the sense of permitting Jesus, uh, Jesus, Jesus taught us to pray, do not allow us or permit us to be tempted to sin. This request implies that God has such control over the tempter as to save us from his power if we call upon our heavenly father. So they say this phrase has to be understood in permitting. So in a sense, what they're claiming is that when we pray, God, don't allow me or don't permit me to be tempted to sin. Well, wait a minute. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 <laughs> seems to imply that God is the one who controls the temptation. So are you saying that, that if I pray, God, don't, don't allow me to be tempted, then God will just uh, keep all temptation from me? Wait a minute. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says I'm going to be tempted. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 seems to clearly imply you're going to be tempted just when you're tempted. First of all, the temptations you face are the same temptations everyone's face. So everyone's going to experience temptation. So if I'm praying, Lord, don't allow me to be tempted, but everyone's going to be tempted. How does, how does that work? Hey, Lord, please don't allow me to be tempted. And his answer to everyone is no, I'm going to allow you to be tempted because we're all going to be tempted. See, you see, we're trying to reconcile what may be, appear to be irreconcilable. This is the, the struggle here. And the Bible does this constantly with these very difficult, like, wait a minute, what about this and what about this? We're going to work on this. So, so I know some of you are already trying to throw out your answers, but I guarantee you that all the answers I receive in email, if you just, if you just take the, the, the emails and just really take their answers and to run them to their logical conclusions, they usually will fall into the realm of being not only illogical, they're just not, they don't even work. They don't, not, they're just, they'll just fall completely apart in and on themselves. So we, we have to be willing to embrace these difficulties, right? James says, God doesn't tempt us. And we're like, okay, we can, we can try to understand that. Like, okay, here's God. And in a sense, he's standing there going, here, do this wrong thing. Do this wrong thing. And we all agree that God is not going to be looking at me saying, do this wrong thing. Do this wrong thing. So the only way we can understand James with 1 Corinthians 
would be, right, God controls the temptations I get. He allows it in, but it's not coming directly from him. It's a temptation arriving from a different source. He's just controlling which ones get to me. So in a sense, he's bringing me the temptation, but it's not coming directly from him. He's the source of the one telling me to do bad. But yet he's bringing the temptation to me that's trying to tempt me to do wrong, which theoretically, in his sovereignty, he could prevent all of it from happening. So we still have to try to reconcile that, and that makes it very, very difficult. And then you throw into that mix. Well, here's Matthew saying, hey, guys, hey, or, or in, in the gospel of Matthew, we have the words of Jesus saying, hey, pray that you won't be led into temptation. And according to the one commentary that we're looking at, they're telling us this means that we pray that God will not permit us to be tempted. Is, is, that, an, is that a prayer that's ever answered? Hey, please, you know, uh, or or permit me not to be tempted, the the word they use. Permit us to, uh, do not allow us or permit us to be tempted to sin. That's the exact words used in this uh, commentary. This request implies that God has such control over the tempter as to save us from his power if we call upon our heavenly father. So this seems to imply that, hey, God is in complete control. Now that's consistent with 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He's in complete control. And it seems to imply that he has the ability to keep us from all temptation. But clearly he doesn't. (laughs) Clearly he doesn't. Or we would never be tempted. Like how, how does, how do you reconcile this? Let's see where else they go here. There's another sense in which we are to plead with God not to lead us into temptation. The word temptation can also refer to trials. We know 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will not test us beyond our ability in Christ to bear it and will always provide a way out. I'll stop right here. Now, this implies that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 should be understood not to be referring to temptation, but be referring to trials. The only problem with that is every trial is a temptation. No matter how big the trial is, no matter how insignificant the trial is, whenever we face whatever we face, we are at that very moment tempted to respond in a biblical way or to respond in an unbiblical way. So every trial is a temptation. If I respond to the trial correctly, then it's a trial that purifies and builds me up. If I respond to it in an incorrect way, it's a temptation and I end up sinning. So just because you say, well, 1 Corinthians is simply referring to a trial, that doesn't fix everything. Because every trial that God brings into my life, it's still a source of temptation, and he's the one controlling it. He's the one controlling it. It's still a source of temptation, and he already knows when he brings it into my life if I'm going to respond correctly or incorrectly. So he already knows the outcome before it happens. So... Just referring to that as a trial doesn't really fix the problem, but it, it still demonstrates that he is in charge of all of it. God sometimes subjects us to trials that may expose us to Satan's assaults for his own purpose as the cases of Job and Peter. Job and Peter, hey, Satan, Satan's involved and God allows Satan to do those things to them, allows those things to occur. Well, in Peter's case, He falls into sin. He denies Christ three times. 
He knows that was going to happen. So then you're like, well, wait a minute. Did he allow him to be tempted beyond what he was able or was he able not to? And if he was able not to, then why do people sin if everyone is able not to sin? Well, clearly we're not able to stop sinning perfectly. So that means we're not capable of being sinless. So now we're right back to the same difficulty that we've been trying to unpack here. First Corinthians 10, 13 says God's in charge. He's like, okay, nope. Temptation can come in. Temptation can't come in. Even if you say that that's a trial, you're still with the same problem because each trial serves as a temptation. In Peter's case, the trial was Satan was going to, in fact, the passage, I believe it's in Luke. I believe it's Luke 22. Let me look at it. I'll just read it directly. I believe it's Luke 22. Luke 22. Luke 22. I know we're going to get a headache trying to unpack all of this, but that's okay. Luke 22, verse 31. Luke 22, 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fell not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Hey, hey, Satan's asked for this. He's going to let it happen. And we all know how it's going to play out. Peter's going to deny three times. We know how it's going to play out. In fact, if you just keep reading, it's going to occur, uh, I don't know how many verses, 15 verses, 10 verses, 12 verses later, I'd have to count. It's, it occurs not long after that ver- now after that passage. So here's God who, who's like, you know, I, he's not the one doing the tempting, but he's the one letting the temptation in. Okay, well, that's still in a sense God giving him the temptation, even though it's not God doing the direct temptation. So we we can we can try to work we can try to find a reconciliation. We can reconcile, I think, 1 Corinthians 10 with James. God, God in a sense brings the temptation. He's just the, not the source of it. In this particular case, it's Satan who's going to do the work, but God allows Satan right in and says, There you go. All right, Peter, this this uh, Satan's gonna be coming for you. All right? He's the one who So in a sense, he allows it in. He may not be the source of it, but he's the one giving you the temptation because he's the one who could have stopped it. Now, that still brings in the Matthew 6 passage, which I I cannot wrap my mind around. Lead me not into temptation. Well, that means uh, ask him not to permit or allow the temptation. And then, well, God is sovereign over it and he can keep keep it from coming to you. Well, Well, then that would seem to imply that we all temptation could be stopped. No, let, let, let's go a little further here. If the temptation in the Lord's prayer refers to trials, then the meaning of Matthew 6, 13 is do not afflict or try us. It's not wrong to pray that we may be delivered from trials and suffering. Again, I don't know how that fixes anything. See, if, it, if, if, if Matthew 6 is only referring to lead us not into trial and difficulty, it's still a prayer of not being led into temptation because every trial and difficulty is a temptation. Every trial and difficulty is a temptation. I'll I'll give an absolutely ridiculous and foolish example. Last night, I was sitting right here in this very empty sanctuary and I recorded an episode in regards to baptisms being invalidated. And it's a story about a Catholic priest who, who 
said the wrong words and it invalidates all of the baptisms he had done for 20 years. And we, we looked at it and I talked about so many different things. At about 15 minutes and eight seconds into that episode, my stomach decided to start growling like I w- had not eaten in six months. And the microphone I use here is a very sensitive microphone. Very sensitive. It can pick up. It can pick up pretty much the smallest tap. And it can definitely pick up when my stomach growls. So I'm after the, I heard my stomach growling and all I could think about was, okay, there's no way the microphone picked that up. Please tell me the microphone didn't pick that up. Afterwards, I go back and listen. And in total horror and shock, I at 15 minutes and like 12 seconds, you can hear my stomach going. And I'm like, that's so embarrassing. That's so embarrassing. So then I had, I, I got then frustrated. Okay, wait a minute. It's already posted on the internet. What do I do? Okay, I got to pull the audio down. Now I got to try to find editing software. I got to try to edit this out. I got to try to put it back together. But is it going to replace it on all the platforms where our podcast is? Our podcast goes everywhere. And I got more and more frustrated and more and more irritated. And I got so frustrated and so irritated. See, not handling it in a godly way. I did not. I'm, I'm here. It's confession time. It was a small difficulty and I got mad and I got angry. And at that point, I, was, I wasn't even able to do any more live broadcasts where typically I would do three, four hours of live broadcasting. I just got in the car and went home and was frustrated and mad the whole night. My whole attitude was garbage. That, that's just a little trial, just a little difficulty. And I handled myself in an ungodly manner. So when even if you reduce it to a trial, to trouble, to difficulty, every trial and trouble is a temptation. So I, I, I don't know why, like, that somehow, like, that magically solves all the problems. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And especially since God already knows how you're going to handle the trial and difficulty before you encounter it. So, we, we talked about some of those issues and, and even understanding 1 Corinthians 10, 13. They say it's not wrong to pray that we may be delivered from trials and suffering as long as we submit ourselves to the will of God, no matter what it is. Well, I agree. But you know what? How many times do we not submit ourselves to the will of God when there's trial and there's difficulty? We respond with frustration, anger, and sometimes trying to do our own way and our own will. The believer can rightly ask to be delivered from testing as well as to ask for the strength to endure it if it does come. We might illustrate Jesus' words, lead us not into temptation, like this. A mother takes her young child grocery shopping with her and comes to the candy aisle. She knows that taking her children down that aisle will only stir up greediness in their hearts and lead to bouts of whining and pouting. In wisdom, she takes another route. Whatever she may have needed down the candy aisle will have to wait for another day. And this way, the mother averts unpleasantness and spares her children a trial. Praying, lead us not into temptation is like praying, God, don't take me down the candy aisle today. It's recognizing that we must, that we naturally grasp for unprofitable things and that God's wisdom can avert the unpleasantness of our belly aching. Now, again, I would say, when does God answer the prayer? Because I could say, Lord, never let me be tempted. Never take me down the candy aisle. And this would seem to imply that theoretically, he could, he could keep us constantly away from the candy aisle. But you know, and I know, and any reasonable person with, you know, any willingness to be honest, 
God constantly, in a sense, allows us to go down the candy aisle. Right? Constantly. Now, you, you say, well, it's not God taking you down the candy aisle. It's you taking yourself. Okay, but isn't God sovereign enough? I mean, if he's sovereign enough to, like, how sovereign is he? <laughs> like, how does this all work? If, he, if he's not going to let any temptation come unto me that I can't handle, but then he lets a temptation come to me that he knows I'm going to fail. Now, I, in no way in any of this do I want to minimize our responsibility. I want to show that we, we can, that there's too many verses that has God involved in the process. The whole story of Job. The whole story of Job, God is involved in that entire process. The situation with Peter, God is involved in that situation. Paul's thorn of the flesh, God is involved in that situation. So we, we, I, I, I 100% understand what James is saying. God is not the one who tempts me, but you can't say that God is not involved in the temptation process. He's sovereign. He controls it. He can stop it or he can bring it in a sense to us. It may be not God doing the actual tempting, but he's allowing the temptation from another source to reach us and praying, lead me not into temptation. I, I, I don't know how I, so, hey, God, permit me not to be tempted today or God, permit me not to experience a trial today. Well, when does he answer that prayer? Whether we are asking for God to lead us away from sin or from difficult trials, our goal is found in the second part of verse 13. Deliver us from the evil one. A petition similar to this is offered by David in Psalm 14 or 14, no, 141, four. Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil so that I take part in wicked deeds along with those who are evildoers. Do not let me eat their delicacies and all things. God is our deliverer and we are wise to seek his power over sin. Now, again, you, you, I know how many preachers will preach this. You seek God's power, you have the power to stop. Well, then that should mean that there should be sinless Christians. And there are no sinless Christians. Christians still have an old nature. They're still going to sin. So we sometimes sell Christianity that, see, God's going to keep you from temptation. He's going to, and it doesn't, it, and people get frustrated and hurt and discouraged and disillusioned and begin to question Christianity and begin to question the Bible. So I don't know if any of that helps. Let, let's do this. Let's go to Luther's small catechism. I have it right here. Let's go to Luther's small catechism. Page 164 of Luther's small catechism. Let's see if this offers any insight. Lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God indeed tempts no one. All right. But we pray in this petition that God would guard us and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our flesh may not deceive us or seduce us into misbelief, despair, and other great shame and vice. And though we may be assailed by them, that still we may finally overcome and obtain the victory. So... Does, does that answer anything for you? God doesn't tempt me, but I'm praying that he basically, that he would guard and keep me from all of this. But yet, how many times do you constantly experience it? 
if we go down into the actual catechism, that, that's kind of like a summary. Uh, then question 235, remember it's a catechism, so it does a, a question and answer. Uh, question 235, 235. And what twofold sense is the word temptation used? The word temptation may refer to an act of testing or to enticement to evil. So he's saying it could be both. Some people like, some people think if it's trying or a test or a trial that, but remember every test or trial is still an enticement to evil because for every test and trial, the there is the temptation of handling it in an incorrect way. So I know everybody wants to draw a distinction between those, but they're very similar. And what sense is it said that God tempts man? God is said to tempt man when he tests or tries the faith of his children for the purpose of purifying and strengthening them. Now, we know James says no one tempts, but Luther acknowledges that God does tempt in a certain way. He does bring temptation in a certain way. And here's the scripture he gives us. Jesus saith unto Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. John chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. The idea is he's, he's in a sense, tempting him or testing him to see what he will do because, well, he already knows how this is going to work. He's trying to challenge Philip to, to, to look to Christ, to look. Jesus is saying, look to me, and Philip is going to try to come up with a solution. The Lord tempted Abram. Uh, Abraham in order to test and to strengthen his faith. Genesis 22, 1 through 19. Jesus tempt uh, the, uh, a, a woman in order to test and to strengthen her faith in Mark chapter 7, verses 25 through 30. Um, and in what sense, this is a question 237, and what sense is the word temptation used in, in the sixth pet, uh, petition? In this petition, the word temptation means temptation to evil. And what, do, and what does temptation to evil consist? Well, they go on. See here, if there's any answers here. Okay, uh, what do we ask in this petition? And they're saying the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we ask, A, to guard and keep us so that temptation to evil may not come upon us. To, B, to strengthen and preserve us uh, when, we, when he permits temptation to come so that in the end we may overcome and obtain the victory. That, it doesn't really answer anything, right? I mean, God, in a sense, does tempt, but we pray that he won't tempt it. We pray that he will keep us from any temptation that will overwhelm us. But whenever we face a temptation and sin, well, then clearly God didn't keep you what would overwhelm you because he knew you were going to sin. And let me tell you, you sin all the time. Let's go to Westminster, uh, the, no, the Westminster Shorter Catechism here. Yeah, this is the Shorter Catechism. And this is how they try to answer this. And the sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. Support and deliver us when we are tempted. So is it lead us not into temptation? Are we, ask, uh, are we saying, Lord, keep me from temptation. Don't allow me to be tempted. Which again, how do we reconcile the fact that we're constantly tempted? And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 has already demonstrated that God controls which temptations we experience, even though God himself is not doing the tempting. How do we reconcile this? 
Or or is it simply, are we simply praying that God lead me not into temptation? Are, are Are we simply praying for deliverance from it? And when we say deliverance from it, deliverance from the effect of the temptation or deliverance from the temptation itself? Not, not easy answers here. Not easy answers. So let's do this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go back through all three passages of Scripture. All right, we're at 44 minutes. We're at 44 minutes. I'm going to go through each passage quickly, and I'm just going to summarize the basic teaching of each passage, right, to the best of my ability. And, and, and this is so important. Sometimes when you come to these passages that seem irreconcilable, here's what you do. You have to go through each one and just grab on to what seems to be clear and just hold on to that, even though it may not perfectly fit with other things. Sometimes you just have to do I know people think, oh, it's easy, it's easy. And trust me, I'm going to get hundreds of emails where everyone's saying, no, it's so, so very, 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 very simple. And, and well, maybe it's simple if you believe that you can just not sin, but typically the people who email me telling me that they don't sin, typically if, if we get into a back and forth in the email, they'll demonstrate a lack of respect and ungodliness and they'll be sarcastic and they'll, they'll start com- demonstrating that they have a sin nature still because it doesn't take much to demonstrate that. You just get into an argument with anyone and you'll, you'll see it. Well, let's go through these. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, uh, 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you such as common to man. Now, that everyone can understand, we can grab onto. Any temptation I experience is common. We will, we've all experienced. And here's the good news. Not only have we all experienced, Jesus has been tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. So Jesus himself is tempted in all the points like we are. Right? So, so temptation, it seems, is, is we're all going to experience. We're all going to face it. Now, how do I reconcile that with lead me not into temptation? I don't know. I don't know because I, actually, I think I do know. You'll, just stay with me. Just stay with me. All right. So we're all going to be tempted. We're all going to be tempted. God's, and then look at the next part. God is faithful. Amen. God is faithful. Whether we understand it, whether we understand what God is doing, look, God is faithful when he allowed Satan to sift Peter. God is faithful when he allowed Satan to do what he did to Job. He is still faithful. It may not make sense to us, but he is still faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able? Now, I think the solution here in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, if you go back and just, if you go back to first, uh, to the early part of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you go back to the early part, Paul here gives them four examples from the history of Israel. And in all cases, they all sin. They, not only are they tempted, they all sin. So I think the ability here, God is not going to give you a temptation which is beyond your ability in this sense. That no matter what temptation I encounter in Jesus Christ, it will not destroy me. It will not 
send me to hell because my salvation is secure in Christ. He is my high priest. He is my sacrifice. He is my, uh, he's my, he intercedes for me. He is my uh, redemption. He is, he is my atonement. He is everything. And if you go through these uh, examples in the early part of 1 Corinthians 10, Israel faces temptation. They sin, they sin, they sin. But in every particular case, God, in a sense, steps in and then he either uses a serpent on the pole, he, he, he makes intercession for them, he makes atonement, now he utilizes Moses and Aaron, but in every particular case, the escape, the, their ability is what God does in a sense for the people. He has Moses and them do those very things that are necessary to save the people, to stop them from being completely destroyed. So whatever temptation I, whatever temptation I encounter, it's common. God is faithful and he's not going to allow that tem- any temptation come to me that in a sense is able to completely destroy me. And, and the passages, if you go to 1 Corinthians 10 and see the examples, in almost every situation, God had threatened to destroy all of Israel, but he doesn't destroy all of Israel. Well, guess what? I may sin, I may fall in that temptation, but in a sense, I am able not to be completely destroyed because of the imputed righteousness. That's the only hope of even trying to figure out 1 Corinthians 10. You can go listen to everything. So God, but this still indicates God's going to allow what comes in. I want to make sure you understand that God is still controlling it. So whatever you encounter, whatever temptation, whatever trial, whatever difficulty, you have to understand God has allowed that in. Now he's allowed it, but it's not going to destroy you completely. It will not because your salvation is secure because you are saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness that you cooperate with. So you cling to that imputed righteousness and through that temptation and through that trial, even if there's sin, even if there's failure, God will use that to purify and to, and to sanctify you and to move you, move you forward. That doesn't mean we excuse our sin. doesn't mean we go reach, run out and try to find sin. But it just means that we have to understand this in a, in a way that's far different than, oh, no, you, you, you have the ability not to sin because we clearly don't. So God controls the temptation, right? And then the ability and the escape is what he has done through Jesus Christ. That, that's the only way. But I want to make sure he's controlling it. He's controlling it. Now, how do we understand that in in regard? Well, let's just make sure. He's controlling it. That's the main thing I want you to understand. Whatever temptation, he controls it. So in one sense, it's perfectly legitimate to say God brought that temptation. He, He brought that temptation to me because he did. He's the gatekeeper. He's the gatekeeper. In his faithfulness, in his sovereignty, he is controlling it. So in one sense, it's perfectly okay to say he brought that temptation to me. All right. Now, Matthew chapter six, verse 13. This is the one that causes all the confusion. Matthew six thirteen, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, all the commentaries and, and catechisms and everything we read, I don't think they had a decent answer. Here's what I think. The key word there is lead. Lead me into temptation. That's the key word. I pray that God will not lead me into, now he may bring temptation to me, but he will not lead me directly into it. He will lead me away from it. 
This has to go with the leading and we are led through the word of God. If I follow the leading of God's word, I will not be led into temptation. I will be led away from it. But that does no way, shape or form. So I'm praying God not to lead me into temptation. I'm praying for Basically, what I am praying there is I'm praying that I don't want to be what this is what I'm acknowledging in that sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lord, I don't want to sin. I don't want to fall into sin. Lead me by your word. That's the only way to understand this, because any other kind of leading is some kind of internal feeling that, well, this leads to chaos. Lead me by your word and the path of righteousness, which God's word will lead you in the path of righteousness. This is in no way, shape, or form any idea that God, that I'm praying for God to to not allow me to be tempted. Because clearly that's not the way, if, if that's the case, this prayer is never answered. God will never lead me into temptation. Now, that doesn't mean that he won't bring the temptation to me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 already seems to imply that he will. Right? So this is simply praying Lord, I, I want to go your way. I want to follow your leading and your leading will lead me away from temptation. That's the, and that's not even a perfect explanation, but that's the best I can come up with. The rest are like, no, you're praying that God will not allow you to be tempted. Well, okay. Yeah, put that on your prayer list and see how frequently that's answered because every day you're tempted in some way, shape or form, right? So I think the leading here is that I'm acknowledging that I don't want to sin and I'm asking God to lead me in his path, which is not a path into sin. It's away from sin. However, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells me that any temptation I encounter, it's common to all people and God is controlling what that temptation is. Now that brings us to James 1. James 1, 13 through 14. James 1, 13 through 14. We're going to run out of time. We're going to run out of time. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. Now, this is the point here. Whatever temptations I encounter, they are not directly God trying to get me to sin in the sense that it's a temptation coming directly from him. He's allowing temptations in, whether they come from the world, whether they come from the flesh, whether they come from the devil, those are coming in and he allows which ones to come in. He allows, knowing that whatever temptation he does bring into my life as a believer, it's not going to ultimately destroy me because I stand in him. So in Christ, I am able to deal with whatever happens from that temptation, whether it's success or even if it's failure, I'm covered in the imputed righteousness of Christ. But in that failure, I hopefully will be restored and grow in my spiritual life. Just what he did with Peter. Hey, Peter, Satan asked to sift you. It's going to happen. And after it all happens, then you're, in a sense, you're going to be converted. In a sense, you're going to be restored. And then you'll, you'll be, you'll be a, a, a step further along in your sanctification. God used Peter's failure and his sanctification. Now, it doesn't excuse our sin. I don't want anyone to think about, well, man, Look, I've committed some horrible sins. I've made some really stupid mistakes in my spiritual life. That's embarrassing. I've hurt people. I had to apologize. I've made some stupid mistakes. So I don't, and it's no one else's fault. It's all mine. 
right? There's no excuse to be made. There's no, there's no explanation. I sinned. All right. So we all, we all need to be willing to acknowledge that. But I know that God allowed the temptation in, even though he's not the one doing the tempting, who, whatever the source of the temptation was, he still allowed it, knowing in a sense that I am able, right? And to escape it in him, in his righteousness, in his forgiveness, in his chastisement, he will ultimately bring me through it and then move me forward in it and through it and past it. And so I pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, meaning, Lord, I know that my only way to not go into temptation is to follow his leading. And that means following his word, which will lead me in paths away from temptation. But that doesn't mean in any way, shape or form that that's prayer is saying that God, don't let me be tempted. No, it's just don't lead me into it. God directly won't lead me into it, but he's still controlling what comes into me, what com- what temptations approach me and what temptations I encounter. So God controls the temptations that we encounter, knowing that he, that nothing will happen to us that we cannot stand because we're uncovered in the imputed righteousness of Christ and that our escape is in his finished work. Okay, now, We ask him not to lead us into temptation, meaning that we want to trust his leading of his word, which will lead us away from temptation, right? And we know that God himself will not tempt us. He won't tempt us directly, but he still allows temptations to come in. So we have those, all those factors playing out at the exact same time in your life and my life, in the life of your church and in the life of my church. And I think that's why Christians need to have a better theology than simply saying, you know, you don't have to sin and you can stop sinning because clearly 2,000 years of church history demonstrates that's not the case. We have to understand that temptation and sin is wrong. Sin is wrong. It, It should be condemned. But sin and temptation is going to be a part of every believer's life in some way, shape, or form. So we need a theology that helps everyone prepare for that inevitable reality that we're all going to experience. And there has to be a better situation of restoration of a sense of a battlefield medicine that restores and bandages people up and helps and then is works with them that through the temptation and the failure that there can be restoration and lead to greater sanctification. That's the only way I can reconcile those three verses. Now, no one has said anything in the live chat. I will either assume that everyone's trying to figure this out or that everyone disagrees. And that's fine if you disagree. That's, look, these are three passages that when you put together and I would walk into any, any hermeneutics class any systematic theology class at any seminary, any of the Bible colleges, seminaries, any of the ones that I've gone to and graduated from, and been a lot of them, it would, it would immediately disintegrate that if I gave the, put these three passages on a white, whiteboard and said, work out a reconciliation of these three, 
first there would be that group of guys would be like, well, this is no problem. This is simple. And they'd be the arrogant ones thinking they have it all figured out. And they would be the ones that if anyone questions their interpretation would immediately say, you're all wrong and you just are making this more complicated. And then you would have those who'd be like, whoa, I have no idea. Can someone help me? And then you would have the others who would try to come up with all kinds of solutions. But that group would probably produce like 100 different possible answers. So in the end result, you would have the arrogant ones who think it's no big deal and think that their answer works, even it would falls apart in and on itself. You would have those who are like, I don't have a clue. And you'd have the others who are like, well, what about this idea and this idea and this idea, which would account for like, you know, 100 ideas. Because these are three very different concepts. And I know that the solution is try to say, well, some of that, sometimes that refers to temptation. Sometimes that refers to trials. And thinking that if you make those two separate things, you've somehow magically fixed the puzzle. But every every trial is a temptation. Every difficulty is a temptation. You know that, I know that. If, if If I walk out of this church whenever I'm done doing live broadcast today, and I walk out the front door and turn the corner to the right where my car is, and I look and someone has smashed out the window or slashed the tires, that's a trial. That's a difficulty. Now, it's going to be a temptation because my immediate response may be one of anger, frustration, bitterness, hatred at the people who did it to my car instead of love, turn the other cheek, or any of the other biblical emotions that I'm supposed to have. So just we're trying to separate them. I understand that there are, you can try to separate them, but they're still temptations. There you have it. Now, to the person who emailed me, I don't know if that answered your question in any way, shape, or form. I don't know. But there isn't a simple answer. God is the one who does bring the temptations to us. There's no way to get around that. First Corinthians 10, he's in charge of them. Even Luther admits that there are situations where he, in a sense, tempts or brings trials. But and, but that he tries to distinguish, well, if it's a trial, then it's not a temptation, but it's still a temptation. I think he, br- he brings the situation, but he's not the one. Him- it's, in other words, it's not God. Think of it this way. God let Satan use the serpent and enter into the garden. He could have kept him out. He knew the end results of that. He knew Eve was going to fall. He knew she was going to fall. There's no question about that. He knew before it even happened. So he allowed it, but God wasn't the one standing there looking at Eve going, eat, 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 eat. And if she would have followed the leading of his word, she would have been led away from the temptation, right? So you have God let it in. God knew it was going to happen. He even knew she was going to fall, knew that Adam was going to fall, knew that it would bring sin into the entire world. He knew it was going to happen. But he wasn't the one. This is what, if you look at the London Baptist Confession and Westminster Confession, we refer to as secondary causes. Now, that's a philosophical way of trying to get God off the, quote unquote, off the hook. But God's still the one who let it in. He still knew. He may not be the one doing the tempting, but he's the one who brought it to them. He let it in. He could have kept it out of the garden. He was in charge of the garden, obviously. He's in charge of the whole world. So see, right there, in a sense, you see all of these concepts coming together. You you can go through each temptation, every trial, every difficulty, and you can see it coming together. God is the one who set Job up. There's no way to, there's no way to get around that. Hey, have you considered my ser- ser- uh, servant Job? 
speaking that to Satan. He allows Satan to do everything. God isn't the one who did it to Job, but he's the one who set it all up. And all of those trials and difficulties obviously was a source of temptation because he could have responded and sinned and how he responded to it. God, God is controlling it. Now, where, Lord, lead me not into temptation, the only concept there is like, okay, follow God's leading, which is his word. All right, I'll stop there. I can't, well, we'll see what the emails look like on this one. Newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, we'll stop right there. We're gonna go back to, uh, Invalid baptisms in the next live broadcast. The next live broadcast will not be on the Church One app because I'm going to be playing audio. And I don't have the ability on the software for the Church One app to actually play audio that I have in my software uh, studio equipment. So so you'll have to uh, download the Spreaker app. And if if you you want to know about how to listen to everything that we do, just email me, newsif at yahoo.com ASAP, and I'll, I'll tell you how to Listen to anything if you if you want to. All right, we're going to stop right there. That's one hour and four minutes of a lot of discussion, a lot of questions, um, a lot of thoughts, and a lot for you to process. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.